0: Hello, this is ASEAN Speaks and a warm welcome back to this week's show. This is a busy week with Asian countries and China reporting PMI data and also the release of U.S. jobs report on Friday. In a speech at the Kansas City Fed's annual economic policy symposium last Friday, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell has signaled that the Fed could move to taper as early as this year if jobs growth met its target. What does the bond market's forward yield curve imply about risk?
1: I think um, the current U.S. rates pricing is asymmetrically uh, dovish. And what I mean by that is that uh, it captures more downsides to growth from Delta uh, rather than some potential upside surprise. So U.S. rates um, forward curve, it currently implies a very low terminal rate, very low terminal Fed funds rate at 1.5% compared to the Fed Dot for the long run. Dot is two point five percent. Still forecast ten-year yield to go moderately higher. Uh, let's say about thirty to forty
0: bips from the current level. Over in Asia, Malaysia has been lagging behind other markets because of its political changes and slow rate of vaccine rollout. With the announcement of the new cabinet lineup, we will be speaking with our strategists to get their views if the appointees especially three key reappointments for the Ministry of Finance, Economy and Health Ministries will usher in new levels of confidence from the capital markets. In Thailand, the stellar results from 2Q earnings season are now already in the rearview mirror. So a markets constantly pricing assets six months into the future, we speak with Maria Lapiz, our Head of Research for Thailand, what the outlook is for 3Q earnings season and what is her prescription on portfolio positioning. And finally, at the sector level, we will also be speaking with our energy analysts about the relationship of China's supply chain bottlenecks and energy prices. Last but not least, we will also speak with our tech analysts if now is the time to take some weightings off the table for ASEAN chip testers and contract manufacturers. So stay tuned on this show for all of these conversations and more. We have Hakbin back today, and our co head for macro research will moderate the show from here on. Here's Hakbin. Hey, hi,
2: morning. It's the 30th of August. So let's kick off with uh, Suhaimi. What's your take on the new cabinet lineup and key ministerial positions? Is it a very different team or just old wine in a new bottle?
3: Hi, um, morning, Abin, and morning, everyone. The cabinet lineup announced by Prime Minister Ismail Sabri last Friday is obviously largely recycled from the uh, previous cabinet, reflecting the the reality of uh, political calculus from a slim majority, given the government has 114 MPs on its side out of 220, which is actually the same as what former Prime Minister Muhyiddin Yassin had uh, when he became Prime Minister back in March uh, last year. Uh, Cabinet size remains the same as previously, i.e. we have uh, the same 31 uh, ministers and same number of deputy ministers at thirty-eight. Um, Of the 31 ministers named, only uh, five new ministers uh, were named. Um, The other remaining 26 are basically the same figures with uh, 16 keeping their portfolios, including finance, economy, international trade and industry, home affairs, education, works and transport ministers, while another 10 were switch to other posts, including the uh, direct swap uh, between health ministers and uh, ministers of science, technology and innovation, both of whom were in charge of the uh, national vaccination uh, program under the previous uh, cabinet.
2: So Swamin, so, I mean, do you think this um, cabinet change will usher in a longer period of political stability and policy certainty? And in particular, does it mean that the budget will, should go through quite smoothly?
3: Um, from, from the economist perspective, uh, I would say the main positive is the retentions of Minister of Finance, Tengku Zafron, and ministers at Prime Minister's Department in charge of the economy, Mustafa Mohamad, uh, because this indicates uh, the tabling of the 12th Malaysia Plan and the tabling of Budget 2022 at the Parliament on 20th September and uh, 29th October are on track. And the appointment... Of of uh, Khairi Jamaluddin as Health Minister is also deemed positive on the national uh, vaccination programme. Uh, furthermore, I think the agreement between government and opposition to cooperate on tackling the pandemic and economic recovery should reduce political instability and policy uncertainty, including removing any risk of Shocks from uh, confidence motion and vote on the new PM when parliament resumes sitting on 6 September, should that happen, as well as some sort of a political ceasefire until the next general election, uh, which will take place uh, within the next 12 to 24 months, in our opinion. So, overall, I think, I think the, the, the risk of political instability and policy uncertainty has come down. Uh, following the developments over the past uh, one week or so.
2: Great. Thanks, Amy. Let's bring in Anand on the strategy. So, Anand, will markets and investors be receptive, do you think, to this uh, new cabinet?
4: Yeah. Hi. Good morning, uh, Hagbin. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, I think uh, a couple of things uh, for the market to cheer about, Uh, and the KLCI was trending up uh, over the last week uh, in the run-up to the uh, cabinet announcement. I think uh, the first thing uh, that the market uh, would be positive about is, as Suani mentioned, uh, the efforts to reach across the aisle to the opposition, you know, to to tackle uh, the challenges uh, facing the country together. I, I think even the opposition has now changed their tune to you know trying to change this government and coming to power now uh, to, to sort of uh, preparing for GE15, the next general elections. So you know that's given uh, the market sort of uh, the signal that. Yeah, I think this government is probably here to stay uh, until the next general elections, uh, and that stability uh, is what the market was looking for uh, to find a base. Uh, the other thing that the market would be quite happy about is uh, the reappointment of two ministers. One is Tunku Zafro. Uh, he's a technocrat. He's probably the only technocrat in this cabinet, uh, and he's done a pretty good job under the previous administration. And I think the market would want him to to stay around as well because he has pushed back against the more populist policies. Uh, like loan moratoriums uh, and windfall taxes. And that's obviously good uh, uh, for the market. Uh, The other uh, personality that the market likes is Kyrie, Kyrie Jamaluddin. Uh, So his elevation to the post of health minister uh, was actually a a very good outcome because he has done a great job uh, on the vaccination drive. uh, And now it's very clear that he's completely in charge uh, of that drive. uh, And we should be hitting herd immunity uh, well before the end of the year, uh, probably in October. So I think the market would be looking at uh, further easing uh, in parallel uh, to that you and expected uh, hitting of herd immunity. So I think overall, uh, you know, the events of the last couple of days uh, do lay a pretty good base uh, for the market to hit up uh, further in the fourth quarter as the economy reopens uh, towards our KLCI target of
2: 1720. So Anand, would you recommend at this point um, in terms of equity strategy to start the loading up on more, more the cyclicals and the reopening trades, uh, you know, given the improving vaccination rates and also, uh, uh, the, I guess, the, uh, the, the falling uh, political risk at this point?
4: Yeah, I think uh, the analysts are also reflecting uh, that sort of expectation. If you look at what rating changes we've had uh, coming through this 2Q reporting season, uh, just overnight we had Jade upgrading uh, some consumer stocks like Padini and Aeon to buy Uh, Last week, we had Desmond Raising Public Bank to buy. We are, you know, we are very much repositioning uh, for uh, the reopening of the economy into the fourth quarter. Uh, And I think our thesis, which has been, you know, unchanged since we published our second half outlook in July, that 3Q would be tough, but 4Q would be a lot better for the market. Uh, I think that's playing out a little bit earlier than expected, but it will play out uh, given uh, the current facts on the ground. So we are very comfortable. Uh, To accumulate now uh, in terms of the sectors that we like, you know, like uh, mid cap financials, uh, selective plantations, uh, auto, uh, consumer place, uh, tech is still on our radar as well, uh, into uh, expectations of a much more robust uh, and uh, a more upside
2: to the market in the fourth quarter in particular. Okay, great. Thanks, Anand. Um, Let's move to Indonesia. Uh, Jue, I think Bank Indonesia and the Ministry of Finance extended the Burden Sharing Agreement for financing the fiscal deficit. So what are the main highlights of the scheme and what are the positives and negatives?
5: Hi, morning. Uh, The Burden Net Sharing Scheme was supposed to be a one-off support measure in 2020, uh, but it was extended uh, until 2022. And given that the resurgence of the COVID wave uh, strained the government budget, So Under this new program, uh, Bank Indonesia will purchase 215 trillion rupiah of government bonds uh, in private placements this year, on top of the 136 trillion that was already purchased uh, as of mid-August. And for 2022, they are also buying an additional 224 trillion rupiah. Uh, The revised total for this year, uh, which is 351 trillion rupiah, would represent a 46% reduction from last year uh, and the 2022 amount is a further cut by 36%. Uh, and as a share of GDP, uh, 2020 financing was 4.2%. Uh, 2021 is expected at 2.2% of GDP and 2022 at 1.3%. Uh, so it does reflect a tapering of the buying as well. Uh, some of the positives of this scheme... Uh, the debt monetization scheme does free up fiscal space for the government to extend uh, fiscal support. Even that, uh, MoF is still looking at a wide fiscal deficit uh, at 5.8% of GDP this year and 4.85% of GDP in 2022. Uh, and also, this comes at a time when Indonesia's external position uh, is stronger. Our current account deficit is still narrow at 0.6% of GDP in the first half of the year, uh, compared to 2.5 to 3% uh, pre-pandemic. And Indonesia is benefiting from the commodity boom as seen in its exports numbers. Uh, Foreign reserves have also uh, stayed resilient. Uh, It's currently at 137 billion US dollars. uh, And inflation has been soft uh, compared to other emerging markets. It's still coming in at below BI's target range. Uh, But some of the negatives to highlight uh, would be that the pressure on the rupiah and bonds may rise if the Fed tightens monetary policy earlier than expected. Uh, And domestic revenue collection in Indonesia has also been low. Uh, It's been falling below 12% of GDP over the past decade, uh, hence relying on burden sharing for another year uh, without raising revenue collection would pose some risk on Indonesia's credit ratings. Uh, Also, there's the question on credibility. Uh, Whether future governments will will indulge in monetizing deficit uh, versus exercising uh, fiscal discipline and uh, adhering to structural reforms.
2: Okay, just before we move to Winston, I guess um, you know, New the COVID cases are coming down. I think there's some some relaxation of the lockdowns. So can you just briefly update on the economic recovery, the COVID situation, and lockdowns? Is the worst over? Yeah, sure.
5: So uh, there are green shoots that are finally emerging. Uh, as you mentioned earlier in the call, the COVID wave is on a downward trend. Uh, new daily cases uh, have eased to around 10,000 and uh, that, that is 65% below levels that we saw uh, in end July. Uh, and restrictions have been easing in Jakarta since uh, the 23rd of August. Uh, Restaurants and places of worship were allowed to operate at 25% capacity, uh, shopping malls uh, at 50%. And hence, we do see an improvement in um, people mobility to retail and recreation venues as well. Uh, It's currently around 10% below pre-pandemic levels. Um, and Indonesia has uh, shifted away from its previous goal of reaching herd immunity uh, to learning to live with the virus. And, and the government is currently preparing roadmaps to reopen the economy uh, with those having been vaccinated likely to face uh, less restrictions.
2: Okay, thanks, Jay. Uh, Winston, so from your side, what are the implications for Indonesian born markets uh, given this burden sharing agreement?
1: Hi, morning, Abin. The, uh, the... Nijerk reaction for rupiah bond was a positive. The 10-year yield actually fell by almost 20 bips, mainly because of supply squeeze. We estimate the auction size to be cut by about 20 to 30% for the rest of 2021. I would say to the bond market burden sharing plan came as a bit of a surprise uh, because uh, I think it's worth clarifying there are different ways of BI bond purchase. It is not a surprise for them to continue buying because um, BI has been buying from the auction. They bought last year, they have been buying this year, and very likely will continue next year. Under market-based mechanism, the government still pay the market rate, So this is not a surprise. But for burden sharing, I would say it's a higher level of support. The bonds are usually issued to BI directly under prior placement at interest costs below market rate or some of the borrowing costs actually fully borne by uh, BI. And the timing of the announcement, I would say is interesting because the government actually looked on track to meet its funding requirement this year, even without the latest burden sharing scheme. So for bond outlook, I would say, um, while it is a near-term positive because of the bond supply squeeze, um, it also suggests medium-term fiscal and funding challenges for Indonesia. So I don't recommend to chase a rally and maintain a neutral outlook on Rupiah bonds.
2: I guess on that, are you worried about the longer term implications and the risk of ratings downgrades? And I guess can BI and MOF just keep on extending this burden sharing agreement indefinitely without, it seems, any kind of market repercussions?
1: Extending the burden sharing, I would say certainly is not ideal because uh, there will be Longer term questions on inflation and policy credibility. Uh, but it is likely a better option uh, than not having it now because I think Indonesia might not be able to fund itself on pandemic expenditure, let's say on healthcare, social or economic support measures. Um, longer term, I think it's a difficult question. Uh, whereas on the sovereign rating, uh, currently uh, Moody's SP and Fitch, they rate Indonesia at triple B flat. Uh, SP having a negative outlook while Moody's and Fitch having a stable outlook. We don't expect negative rating action in the short term, in three months. But over the medium to longer term, I would say uh, rating pressures will continue to increase if the pandemic is prolonged or the economy doesn't recover strongly from next year. I think it is also worth pointing out um, Indonesia public debt ratio is actually not very high. It's only about 40% plus. But if we measure it from... That affordability perspective, let's say we measure by interest to revenue ratio, it had deteriorated quite substantially to twenty percent last year. And for guidance, usually anything more than fifteen percent is considered quite high. So I think there will be question on whether Indonesia can stick to its plan to bring the deficit ratio down back to three, below three percent from twenty twenty three.
2: Okay, um, since Vincent, we have you on the line. Um, what is your take on um, Chairman Powell's statement? And were you surprised by the bond yield reaction, uh, even though he said the tapering will actually begin before year end?
1: Um, I would say starting QE taper this year um, is probably largely in line with market expectation. And he did emphasize that there will be no hurry to high interest rates. I think the reason why the bond yield fell in reactions was because um, there was some bearish positioning building into the Jackson Hole meeting. A number of um, FOMC members like James Bullard, Rob Kaplan, and Esther George, they reiterated their calls to start taper as soon as possible and to end it in the first or second quarter next year. So Bond Market was a bit cautious. So I think it came out as a relief to them because uh, Powell sticked up to his speech. So for Bond Outlook, um, we still keep it at bearish. I think um, the current U.S. rates pricing is uh, symmetrically dovish. And what I mean by that is that it captures more downsides to growth from Delta uh, rather than some potential upside surprise. So U.S. rates um, forward curve, it currently implies a very low terminal rate, very low terminal Fed funds rate at 1.5% and compared to the Fed dot for the long-run dot is 2.5%. Still forecast 10-year yield to go moderately higher, uh, let's say about 30 to 40 bips from the current level. Okay,
2: thanks, Winston. Let's move on to uh, Thailand. So, Maria, I think your latest uh, Thai strategy, you wrote that earnings for second quarter were good, but the outlook is not so good. Uh, Can you elaborate?
6: Good morning, Hakbin and good morning, everyone. Uh, Yes, there is high likelihood of earnings downgrade host the third quarter earnings. A lot of hope is pinned on the reopening, both domestic, i.e. removal of lockdown measures and borders, especially to international tourists. There are many hurdles to execution, amid high infection rates, still close to 20K per day, high mortality, which is over 200 per day, and also restive uh, politics. Earnings for the current quarter, i.e. third quarter, uh, will be dragged down by the lockdown measures that began in July. There will be some easing of the lockdown measures uh, starting September 1. But it looks like that for some businesses, operations will actually incur higher running costs while store traffic will remain constrained. So basically, the negative outlook uh, on earnings will be mostly from the domestic side of of the economy.
2: So Maria, what sectors and stocks uh, would you be recommending at this point? I guess which uh, sectors or names are more prone to negative surprises and downgrades?
6: We see the market moving from rotational to being highly selective. So we don't have sector preference. Valuation is expensive and companies are expected to deliver good earnings are already priced in for perfection. Our top picks are weighted towards cyclicals that have good exposure to the overseas market, such as uh, Siam Cement, Indorama Ventures, HANA Microelectronics, Sumbun Advance, GFET, Big Green. And for the domestic plays, we have financials, uh, SCB, Titlo, JMT, and also residential property developer land and House. Sectors likely to see downgrades are the domestic plays from retailer to services to some FMCG seeing sequential weakening in demand for their products and or increase in input prices that could not be passed on because of a soft demand. In many conversations with corporates i am sensing that third quarter this year would likely be worse than the 2020 bottom which was second quarter how much uh, worse it would be uh, is the negative surprise as for downgrades we expect fine-tuning negative fine-tuning among tourism related companies transportation and to some extent export related companies especially those that have been benefiting from the sequential weakness of the Thai baht. Beyond 3Q, I am cautiously optimistic. There is a talk of country reopening in October to begin drawing back the lost tourism revenues. But success or fail, it is not really for Thailand to say. Tourists worldwide will probably assess its destination's attractiveness based on risk of infection and the ease of entry and return.
2: Okay, thanks, Maria. Um, Kasha, Thailand's energy sector has lacked the overall SET index, despite pretty strong earnings in the first half. So why is that? Is there a structural derating of the energy sector?
7: Hi, good morning, Hakbin. I don't think this is an issue of structural derating. I think long-term outlook for the chemical sector remains positive while crude prices will continue to remain elevated, in my view. Uh, unlike the U.S. and European counterparts, you know, where we're seeing uh, under greater pressure to transition, uh, it is less so for the Asian players. If I had to guess why the lag, I think the key reason has been that we've seen tremendous upside volatility in both crude prices and chemical spreads uh, due to some of the supply disruptions. Uh, these have been great for earnings, but market understands that these are not sustainable. And market is looking forward. We are also in an interesting situation where the energy sector margins have improved, but risk from COVID-19 in the region uh, remains an overhang. So this has been sort of the key reason why uh, the cyclical sectors have been weighed down. So just to conclude, you know, this is not really a structural derating, but it's more in terms of market looking forward. Uh, to more sustainable uh, levels.
2: So, Kasha, in your report, you said China's the key to watch. Uh, could you just elaborate on how you know, China inventories or the port lockdowns or the manufacturing production um, impacts the energy sector?
7: Sure. So China is without a doubt one of the most important countries when it comes to the energy space, just given the scale of consumption. Uh, in terms of crude, it is the second largest consumer after U.S., but it is the largest importer by far importing roughly 11 million barrels per day on average. Just to give you a reference, the second largest importer is 4 million barrels per day. So the recent sharp drop in crude from $70 plus to $65 last last two weeks was largely on worries about China's Delta variant outbreak. So you can see the outsized impact of China. Um, As of now, it seems China has been able to control the outbreak. Uh, I do want to touch on chemicals, which is not as often talked about. Uh, China is the largest producer, consumer, and importer of chemicals. What happens in China is absolutely critical for the rest of the regional chemical players. As on average, 30 to 50 percent of chemical exports go to China. Our channel check reveals that China's chemical imports and prices are getting softer. And the reason is that a lot of them are used as inputs for the Chinese exports, which has seen a slowdown in growth. The logistic headaches, which you know, the container shortages, the higher freight rates, is part of the problem. So I think that once this eases, we could see a snap up in regional chemical prices, especially since chemical inventory levels as a whole in China are below their five-year average. Uh, so this is something that we're closely monitoring. Uh, so to conclude, you know, a stable Chinese growth, robust exports, and a strong virus control in China will be key to support
2: the regional energy sector. Okay, thanks, Kasha. Uh, lastly, let's move on to Gene on Singapore tech. So Gene, I think the small, medium-cap Singapore tech sector has had a remarkably uh, strong run, and I think benefiting from the global chip shortage. So good call. Uh, but is it time to take some money off the table? I'm Ani So overall answer is no. I think we think it's too
8: early uh, to switch from um, chip shortage beneficiaries into contract manufacturers with divers end markets. This is for the simple reason that um, the latter group is still facing risks of earnings uh, misses um, in the next few quarters. Uh, meanwhile, we think that the chip shortage beneficiaries still stand a better chance of positively surprising um, um, street uh, expectations in terms of results in the coming uh, one to two quarters. We've also not seen rotation from uh, these beneficiaries that we're talking about into the laggard contract manufacturers as well. So this uh, suggests to us that investors are adopting a wait-and-see attitude.
2: So from your more recent conversations with the tech companies, you know, how long do you think the chip and component shortage will last for? And will the prices on you know, semiconductors and electronic devices keep on rising into next year?
8: So, from our chat with uh, companies, as as well as looking at you know various news flow, uh, chip shortages are expected to last into twenty twenty two. So, different people have various uh, timeframes within twenty twenty two, and in terms of um, prices rising, so it seems like input prices can continue to rise. So, g- to give you an example, the latest uh, was probably TSMC last week um, saying that it will raise prices. Um, And many expect this to also have a domino effect. And and as such, maybe other foundries will also raise their prices as well. Uh, So far, the feedback that we've gotten from the companies that we cover is that uh, they are able to pass most of the costs through to their customers.
2: Uh, Lastly, Gene, can you just remind us on your top Singapore stock picks?
8: Yeah, sure. So let's look at it from a sort of time horizon. Horizon point of view. Uh, We like Franken and UMS over the next one to two quarters. And over a 12-month horizon, uh, we like AM as well as Venture.